Jesus often walked a line between the old and the new. As a Jew, he was committed to his faith and seemed to be uninterested in starting an entirely new religion. But as a forward-thinking reformer, he also refused to be bound by tradition or the old way of doing things. Rather than getting rid of the old religion, though, Jesus likes to turn it around in his hands and look at it from new and different angles. Now, in this text, a question about fasting arises. How come Jesus and his disciples never fast when so many other devout Jews do? Well, Jesus, who's committed to ushering in a new kind of kingdom, isn't especially interested in fasting, not to say that he's never done it or that there's anything wrong with it, but in essence, he says that you can't do new ministry with mechanisms that have grown tired and worn. The scripture reading today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 9. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak, for the patch pulls away from the cloak, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping always the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. My favorite color has always been black. That's no secret. It should come as no surprise to anyone. I wear a lot of it especially on Sundays, um, but I don't exclusively wear black, contrary to popular belief. I also wear a fair bit of brown and uh, some very, very dark gray. <laughs> now, I might be inclined to experiment with other colors, but do you have any idea how hard it is to find a pair of red leather pants in the men's department? It's shameful. Anyway, I like to think of myself as a forward-thinking gentleman with an open mind. And so after many years of limiting myself to black as my favorite color, I've settled on a new one. There are so many wonderful hues and shades to choose from after all, but only one color could supplant my love of black. And that, of course, is Vanta Black. Vanta Black is a brand new color engineered by scientists to be the darkest artificial hue known to man. This is achieved via a series of vertically aligned carbon nanotubes. 
basically a bunch of impossibly small carbon tubes that stand next to each other like trees in a really dense forest. And when light falls upon this forest, uh, it becomes trapped, bouncing from one tube to another like a pinball, unable to escape, absorbed into the darkness. Of course, all this is happening you know, down at the molecular level. But the end result is a chemical substance that reflects no light. A darkness, blacker than coffee, blacker than midnight on a moonless night. Now, most objects that we see are lent a sense of depth and dimension by the light and the shadow that plays upon them. But reflecting nothing, vantablack shapes actually have no depth. So a, a sphere that's painted in vantablack actually looks like a hole in reality, like someone took a pair of scissors and cut a circle out of the space-time fabric. Can you imagine how amazing that would look on a pair of leather pants? <laughs> Unfortunately, it seems the carbon tubes tend to irritate human skin, uh, so a Vantablack wardrobe isn't in the cards. But maybe it's just as well. I mean, it looks awesome, but there's something unsettling, I have to admit, about a substance from which even light cannot escape a hungry and ravenous thing that takes and takes and takes, absorbing everything and giving back nothing in return. It's artificial, unnatural, even contrary to our very human nature. For it is in our nature to take, yes, but also to give. Human beings in many ways are fundamentally selfish, I think. We're hardwired for our own survival and the preservation of our tribe. But that's not the whole truth about who we are because there's another part of us that's imbued with an existential need to reach out, to give of ourselves. That's the part of us that's made in God's image, I believe. The soul, the light, the, the life that animates our hungry flesh. It's the part of us that seeks purpose outside of ourselves, that wants to leave the world a better place than we found it. The part of us that believes in a future beyond the span of our own years. A future that we may never see with our own eyes. Back in 1862, there was a man named Deacon Yalding who had a vision of a place that would outlast him and his children. And alongside ten other pioneers from New England, he established this first congregational church of Glen Ellen. It was the first church in town. There was no other, and Yalding and our other forebears pooled their money together and bought a little one-room building over at Stacy's Corners uh, up on Main Street. Now, it's said that Deacon Yalding was driven in this endeavor by a fear of raising his daughters in a town known only for its taverns and brothels and houses of ill repute. Which is odd, then, that uh, they decided to build the church right next door to Stacy's Tavern, <laughs> where the raucous cacophony of drunken debauchery often interrupted worship services. But the proximity to the local red light district may well explain why, according to our oldest records, Many of our earliest church members were single young women. 
Before long, the noise got to be too much, and so they moved the church down the hill. They literally picked up the building. That's what they used to do in those days, I guess. They picked it up and they rolled it on a series of logs all the way down Main Street, a three-week journey, a perilous journey from which the building nearly slipped and plummeted to its doom, had Deacon Yalding not leapt in front of it heroically, prepared to give his very life for this place, quickly joined by others who narrowly averted catastrophe. And then they moved again and again until they settled right here on the corner of Forest and Anthony, where we worship today. There were close to 100 members in the church in those days, and uh, they pooled their resources again, and they bought this land for $6,500. Since those olden days of yore, this place has grown roots and branches that reach the heights of our ancestors' lofty vision and beyond. In the early days, we made wool socks and bandages and freshly baked donuts for soldiers on the front lines of the Civil War. We housed the town's first library back in 1881. And as the 20th century turned and the years became decades, the branches bore more fruits. Organizations like Bridge Communities that offers transitional housing for homeless families and the Glen Ellen Family Counseling Service were born here in this building. We still host the counseling agency today, which offers quality services on a sliding scale for people who lack resources. This place, this building, has offered sanctuary to Alcoholics Anonymous groups, Boy Scout troops, and over 60 homeless guests every week who come here for a place to sleep and a hot meal to warm their spirits. This is all to say nothing of the congregation itself, gathered time and again for 156 years, growing closer to God, raising our children in the faith, and tending to one another's wounds when life gets hard. It's a place that really strives to satisfy that human impulse to give of ourselves for the sake of another. We call this room the sanctuary, but truly this entire building has been a sanctuary to so many for so many years. A few months ago, after a memorial service for one of our uh, long-standing and beloved members, Shirley Brown, uh, a man came up to me and introduced himself. You don't know me, uh, he said, and I haven't been here in a very long time. But I used to attend an AA group here back in the 80s, down on the lower level. And it's no exaggeration, he continued, to say that this building saved my life. If these walls could only talk, we'd hear countless stories like this one, stories from people who have rested in the shade of this place, who've been sustained by its fruit. And if the church is indeed like a tree, you need only look up to see the extent of its branches and all the lives that have been touched. Above our heads is a mighty cloud of witnesses, the handwritten names of everyone who has ever belonged to this community of faith. When the banner was crafted 31 years ago, it was 400 feet long. And today it's 645 feet 
the seeds that God has planted here continue to bloom. They continue to grow. Every so often I like to read the classic children's book, The Giving Tree, to my son. As you probably know, it's a very familiar story. Uh, It tells the story of a tree who loved a little boy who played in her branches and ate her apples in his idyllic childhood years. And as the boy grows older and more distant, he only comes back to the tree when he needs something. Apples that he can sell in the city for a profit, or branches that he can use to build himself a house, or wood that he can use to craft a boat and sail away from his life's failures as he grows older and more bitter. And the tree keeps on giving and giving and giving until there is nothing left but a miserable stump. And the tree was happy, writes author Shel Silverstein of The Lonely Stump, but not really. Good Lord, The Giving Tree is a depressing book. (laughs) But parents all over the world keep on pulling it out and reading it to their kids in the hopes that a light bulb will go on over their little heads And they'll realize that this book is about unconditional love, both from God and from their parents, who give and give and give to children who take and take and take. And that maybe their children will come to appreciate everything their parents do for them and offer a little bit of gratitude for a change. (laughs) To my knowledge, that has never once happened. My son's only question about the book is why it has a talking tree. But I think this church is a lot like the tree in the story. Now, that's not to say that we're like the little boy, because this congregation has always been generous and has always gone to great lengths to ensure that the church has a sustainable future and that it isn't whittled down into a stump. But that is always a risk. This building gives so much, and that takes an immense toll on it. The roof that offers shelter to our homeless pads guests is leaking. The boiler that keeps us all warm needs repair. The walls that bear witness to the community and ministry that happens here are peeling with age. And in the interest of full disclosure, I have to confess that there is a small dent in the drywall of the hallway downstairs near the youth room where many years ago I attempted an ill-advised handstand and fell into the wall. Unfortunately, no amount of generosity or money can ever repair my wounded pride. You know, in conversations like these, we, we often frame it as being about what the church needs, what the church needs from us. But, you know, there's another way to look at it, and, and that's, that's about what we all need. We need to live lives of purpose. We need to follow Jesus. We need to live abundantly. That's why our forebearers came here. That's why we come here. That's why others will come here. And that's why the building matters. A church building with no ministry is like a wineskin with no wine. 
In a conversation with his disciples, Jesus once used this metaphor about putting new wine in old wineskins. You don't put new wine in old wineskins, Jesus says, because it'll burst and the wine will be ruined. Similarly, we need a sustainable infrastructure, a place to hold our ministry if we're to keep embarking upon new uh, work in God's name here. This campaign, this capital campaign, it's about sustainability. Yes, it's about building a sustainable future, but it's also about new wine, about looking ahead, about being called forward to what's next. And the most exciting part of this campaign for me is the new ways that allow us to serve our PADS guests in our community, you know, the most materially poor people in town. The Pilgrim Hall renovation will offer more hospitable shelter with enhanced shower and laundry facilities, additional storage, a cozier place to sleep where the lighting isn't cold and harsh and the floor isn't threadbare and stained. It could be a place that feels like home for them and for us, too. This building, our home, our spiritual home, has endured much. Almost 30 years ago to the day, I believe it was January 15th of 1988, this sanctuary caught fire in the middle of the night. Our 1927 electro-pneumatic pipe organ, the largest of its kind in existence, was destroyed. The devastation was absolute. Uh, in a newspaper article published at the time, uh, the village president, Mike Formento, offered his thoughts. It burned beyond the plaster to the bare walls at some points, Formento said. I've never seen anything quite that bad. It's a real catastrophe for our community. Well, naturally, it was an even greater catastrophe for our community here in this church, as many of you who were here at that time can recall. And as I reflect back on that terrible blaze, I'm reminded of a poem by the poet Christian Wyman called After the Diagnosis. Now, the poem's actually about his own personal struggle with cancer as he likens his body to a tree that's been utterly devastated. But his poignant words remind me of the church and all that it's endured and survived. The treacherous journey down Main Street, the fire that nearly burned us down to our roots, and all of the human drama and struggle of 156 years. No remembering now when the apple sapling was blown almost out of the ground. No telling how, with all the other trees around, it alone was struck. It must have been luck, he thought for years, so close to the house it grew. It must have been night. Change is a thing one sleeps through when young, and he was young. If there was a weakness in the earth, a give he went down on his knees to find and feel the limits of. There is no longer. If there was one random blow from above, the way he's come to know from years in this place, the roots were stronger. Whatever the case, he has watched this tree survive, wind ripping at his roof for nights on end, heats and blights that left little else alive. 
no remembering now. A day's changes mean all to him, and all days come down to one clear pain through which he sees among all the other trees this leaning, clenched, unyielding one that seems cast in the form of a blast that would have killed it, as if something at the heart of things and with the heart of things had willed it. Indeed, something at the heart of things and with the heart of things has willed our survival. And not just our survival, but I believe that God wills our flourishing. God wills green leaves upon these branches that shelter our community and the world beyond our walls in the love of Jesus. High up above our heads, above the cloud of witnesses, there is an enormous, enormous bronze bell in the steeple of our church. It was purchased back in 1883 by some of the women in the congregation who believed that we needed something to call people forward to worship. And not just any old bell would suffice. In their words, they sought out, quote, a mighty bell for the ages. It took them eight years to save up enough money to buy that bell. And when they finally did, they bought one that was too big for their little church because they believed that one day the church would grow large enough to accommodate that massive bell. It was a symbol of the future. The congregation hauled that thing with them every time they moved the building until the beautiful brick church that we sit in today was finally constructed and the bell was hung in our tower. And today, that majestic bronze bell calls us forward. It calls us toward a sustainable future. It calls us towards new ways of doing ministry. The bell is old. It's very old, but it will always call us towards something new. It is, after all, a mighty bell for the ages. And a new age is just beginning. Amen.